Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup, the only podcast on the internet where we talk about politics and football and how one affects the other. Dave, I'm happy. I'm happy, Dave. Can you guess why I'm so happy today? Why I might be singing a song? No, no. What could possibly be going well? Okay, all right, okay. Let, <laughs> let me let me break it down because I sent I sent you a message yesterday, a very long, analogous voice message, where I said to you, the Gareth Southgate going into this game against Germany was like Captain Jean Luc Picard at the beginning of Star Trek First Contact, the movie. Now, I don't know how many of our football politics listeners are familiar with the great Captain Jean-Luc Picard and the movie Star Trek First Contact, directed by Jonathan Frakes, who plays Commander William Riker. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But in Star Trek First Contact, Captain Jean-Luc Picard realises that the Borg are about to attack Earth. The Borg, they're like robot zombies. They assimilate people for the the good of the collective. Previously, they had assimilated Jean-Luc Picard, but he came back. And when he realises that Earth is under attack, Jean-Luc Picard, played by the incredible Patrick Stewart, says the Starship Enterprise is ready to defend Earth. But back on Earth, Starfleet says, no, Jean-Luc Picard, your previous trauma with the Borg means you're not the man we want to lead this defence. Basically, Starfleet says he's, he's been too traumatised in the past. He can't think clearly. He can't formulate a plan because he's too involved emotionally to be clear-headed. And I said to you, Starfleet were wrong about Jean-Luc Picard, but they would have been right about Gareth Southgate. Gareth Southgate, he went so defensive. When they, when they released that team sheet, I was furious, Dave, much like Starfleet. I said he is not the man to lead us against Germany, given his trauma from 1996. And you know what I discovered at the end of all of that, Dave? What was that? The... That resistance was futile. It is if you're fucking German. <laughs> I was acting. I was acting like Starfleet. And Gareth Southgate was more like Jean-Luc Picard. If I had just trusted in him, if Starfleet had trusted Jean-Luc Picard... Well, they, 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 beat, they defied all expectations. And just as Jean-Luc Picard came through and saved the day, Gareth Southgate did something very similar. Is there, is there any way back from this now? Now that you've drawn a comparison between Jean-Luc Picard, your hero, yes. um, of whom you have a tattoo on, of, on your arm, yeah. um, now that you've drawn a comparison between him and Gareth Southgate, can he do any wrong now? No matter what happens for the rest of his career, you're going to be like, well, he did do a Picard against the Germans. Well, yeah, that's true. But also there is an evil clone Picard played by Tom Hardy. So we will see. Is, uh. is Gareth Southgate French Patrick Stewart Jean-Luc Picard or is he Tom Hardy Romulan forced to work a, a life in the mines Kind of Picard. We'll see. We'll see if he's good Picard or bad yeah. Picard. Criminally, 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 hard to say, criminally ugly Tom Hardy in yeah. Star Trek Nemesis, considering yeah. his natural good looks. They had to put some prosthetics on him. He's got a fake nose or something to look more like Patrick Stewart and less like himself, which equates to being less handsome. It's terrible. But when they do that reboot of Next Generation, 
in the movies, like the Chris Pine Star Trek, Tom Hardy for Jean-Luc Picard. It's already done. The casting's already done. All day. Yeah. All day, mate. Yeah, now, Germany versus England. Are we starting there? Yeah, it's not, it's not as sure. interesting as Star Trek The Next Generation. True. But it is what we're here to talk about, so I guess we probably should. <laughs> it's definitely not as long as Star Trek Next Generation. No, this is true. What did you think of this match? Um, well, in response to your message about Gareth Southgate and Jean-Luc Picard, I was saying that um, perhaps it's a ploy to sit, sit defensively, as you say, but to launch counterattacks. And I was saying, and that'll work with that with the three men, the three men at the back, and then uh, the wing backs, whoever they may be, because I think there's good pace there. And then they would put two holding midfield players, Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips, which they did, and then two rapid wingers to go alongside Harry Kane up front, which they did. They they played Bukayo Saka from the start, which I'm sure most English people were were calling for after his performance against the Czech Republic. So that that was great to see. Um, but to what I wasn't really banking on was no. Yeah, what I was banking on was England sit defensively, let Germany have the ball, launch counterattacks. But that's not really what happened. Like the the actual balance of the game, especially in that first half, was that England had the majority of the ball, majority of the possession, made most of the chances, and it was a a bit of another instance of everyone thinking they knew what to expect from Gareth Southgate and Gareth Southgate's England, and then. He, it wasn't that way. It wasn't that way at all. At least, at least I can say that from my perspective. And we spoke before the game, and I was everyone I've spoken to about this game. I was I was going, we're we're gonna lose. Aren't yeah. We? Let's just let's just admit it. We're gonna lose because it's England. Yeah. And because it's Germany. And you know, sure we haven't conceded a goal yet, but we also haven't been scoring many. And Germans have always got goals in them, um, even though they were fragile at the back in their group stage, conceding two against two against Hungary and two against Portugal. And um, just, it was just the one against France, wasn't it? The maximum zone goal. Yes. Um, so yeah, I wasn't confident. But then as the first half gathered pace and time ticked on, I was like, oh no, let's not do this again. Let's, let's, I need to catch myself and not get too invested in this, not get too hopeful, not get... Um, not not uh, allow myself to gain any confidence from this. Let's just wait for it all to go tits up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what can you say? It 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 kind of didn't. The, the Germany had some chances, but there there wasn't really any point. Even though England, as they love to do, kept us waiting for the goals, there wasn't really a point where I thought, oh, we might actually. But there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't a point where I thought we're gonna we're gonna concede goals here. They looked like they can score. They didn't really look like they could score. And even when Thomas Muller was through on goal and you're thinking, oh shit, here it is. This is it. We were 1-0 up and it's like, this is it. We, were, we flew too close to the sun. <laughs> now we're going to be reminded of who we are and what it means to be English. He, he, he fucking fluffed it. Threw on goal, one-on-one with Pickford. And he he's, he's, he dragged it wide. And like like um, Raheem Sterling did, because he gave the ball away t- to allow them to counter on us. Um I felt like I dropped to my knees with relief as that went wide. and Because besides that, they didn't really give us anything. I think Pickford made one good save from Timo Werner, from a good through ball from Kai Havertz. But yeah, I don't remember much much more of a threat, which is weird. Weird, but 
but great. Like now I, I'm more confident going forward to the rest of the tournament as an England fan than I was um, obviously before the game, but more than I thought I ever would be, to be honest. I thought if we keep going, it's going to be because we're scraping it. We're going to keep getting little one nils or nil nils and winning on an extra time or penalties or something. But to actually, dare I say, dominate a Germany team at a major, a major tournament and to yes stay firm at the back still haven't conceded a goal four games into a major tournament england haven't even conceded once so i'm like oh shit i'm getting weird weird memory flashbacks of uh, russia 2018 where i was like oh my god is this actually going to happen are we actually good like are we good or are we just lucky what's happening i can't tell and um, whereas before the game i was just like eh it'll be nice to watch the rest of the tournament with no investment and just be like well it's just football now there's no england but here we go. Like, this was. Is it on, Dom? Is it on? Is it ha- is it going to happen? Well, you remember my general feeling during the World Cup, twenty eighteen, where I was in living in China at the time, but I was seeing what people in England were saying, and I couldn't quite believe, the um, the excitement that people in England people in the UK were having like oh my god this is the best England team we've ever seen and blah 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 blah. and everyone got sucked up into their own momentum and I'm still not confident in this England team now that this is again this is me not knowing anything about anything I have to preface that every time because somebody always says you don't know anything about and most of the time that person is me so prefacing this (laughs) for myself The reason that we came out with such exuberance last night was because they got that bloody second goal. And if that second goal hadn't gone in and it had ended 1-0 again, we all would still be like, oh, we've bloody got away with that one. But because exactly what I was just saying, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the second one went in, we're all like, England's the best goddamn team in the world. Now, what I can definitely say is that the the England defence was pretty much pitch perfect yesterday. There's almost nothing about the defensive players that I could particularly fault. Like, I made a joke to you um, before the game. They said Harry Maguire starting and all the pundits were saying, the best thing about Harry Maguire, he passes the ball up the pitch. And I was like, is that really how we're going to qualify, like, how good a defensive player is? He actually passes the ball towards the goal, rather than just from side to side to side to side to side. They're like, what's really good about Harry Maguire? He gets the ball and then he runs with it. It's like, oh my God, who would have thought a football player getting the ball and moving it towards the goal would be so revolutionary? But it was... And the the person uh, who's the German player who uh, wears like the Robin Batman mask, Antonio Rudiger. Yeah, Rudiger. Yeah, he was doing exactly the same thing for Germany, but he did it more. And when he did it, it was like, oh my god! Like he's just cut the pitch in half with that run. And Harry Maguire was doing it to a lesser extent, but he still did it. And that play, that was a huge difference to what England were lacking in the previous games, where the ball just goes from side to side to side. It goes from side to side to Harry Maguire, bam, he runs. And I, I think I said to you, imagine if we had, imagine if we had Harry Maguire and you had bloody 
Graylish on the pitch at the same time, we might actually move the ball towards the goal. Who would have thought? Um, and then once Graylish came on, we scored two goals. And and it turns out, Dave, actually, that if you have a team that moves the ball towards the goal, that they will actually score goals. And I didn't realise that this was such a major deal, but it turns out that it is. And this is, again, why there is a lot of praise for Raheem Sterling going on at the moment. And I don't agree with it. And a lot, a lot of pundits and uh, reporters and things are saying, like, what more does Raheem Sterling have to do to prove that he's a great England player? And it's like, well, he, for me, he actually has to play well. Right. Like that's that's the big thing that I want from Raheem Sterling is right. We've got what we now have four goals in four games and three of them have come from Raheem Sterling. Great. Right. That's what we we want him to score goals. But the only reason it wasn't one all was because the German player missed the German player who never misses missed the one time. And we got lucky. And who gave him that ball? Who gave them the chance to make it one all? It was Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling in the first half played on the left side of the pitch and produced nothing. He produced nothing at all. Actually, I lie, he had one shot and it was a pretty good shot. Actually, in the first half. But he played on the left. It was him and Luke Shaw. And everyone said Luke Shaw didn't have a particularly good first half. And Sterling didn't have a good first half either. And the reason is because Sterling can't play with Luke Shaw. Then you bring on Graylish on the second half. Luke Shaw gets an assist. Graylish gets an assist. The left side of the pitch is on fire. What was the difference? Well, Sterling was on the right side of the pitch. And what happened when Sterling went on the right side of the pitch? Well, he gave it to the German player who almost scored and made it one all. So for me, what does Sterling have to do to like not be replaced with Graylish, who got an assist? who came on and then basically produced two goals with Luke Shaw playing together on the left side of the pitch. What does Sterling have to do? Well, he actually has to be better, right? Like, it's great that he scored three goals, but if Graylish had been on, he also could have scored three goals and produced more goals that we don't get to see because Sterling's on there. And I'm still not convinced because Sterling doesn't play well with Kane. He doesn't play well with Shaw. So who is he playing well with other than himself? Because what he does is he gets the ball. Like in the first half, at the very end of the first half, Harry Kane had his only chance up to that point. And everyone was like, oh, if Harry Kane was confident, he would have scored that. It was an off day. But what, ha- what happens is Sterling gets the ball, runs directly into four defenders, and then the ball gets deflected and goes to Harry Kane. Rather than Sterling runs in, sees that Harry Kane is open because there are four defenders going to Sterling, and Sterling plays it off, but he doesn't. If Sterling plays that ball off, Harry Kane scores. But he doesn't, because Sterling is a selfish player. And great, he scored our three goals. Like, incredible. Without him, we, we, maybe we wouldn't have, have scored. But does he deserve, like, the praise for getting this team through? No, because I think if we'd had a Graylish or somebody else, we would have produced more chances than we did with him then. So it's difficult, right? Because do you take out your player, your only player that has scored goals up to this point, basically? 
Like Harry Kane got one. Fantastic. Amazing. We need him to get one. But do you take out your only player who is scoring goals because he is the only player able to score goals because he doesn't produce chances for anyone else? There's a, there's a lot to digest there. And I know if Rio Ferdinand, if I was in a conversation with Rio Ferdinand, he would be furious with me right about now. Because he, <laughs> yeah, loves, he, he loves Sterling. He, he thinks that so, Sterling's yeah. great. Well, I will, I'll start by saying that I agree that I think Grealish would create more chances than Sterling does. I mean, that, that is the benefit of having Grealish on rather than Sterling, for sure. Um, but... Is it worth leaving him out? I don't know because it, he's... That's the risk, <sighs> right? That's the risk. Because he frustratingly scores the goals that you don't get to see other players score, right? Why does Harry Kane not get given the chance to score goals? Because there's nobody giving him the ball. And the reason that nobody gives him the ball is because Sterling just does his own thing. Yeah, I don't agree with that. And I don't, I don't agree that he only plays for himself. Um, and I think that he did do some, some good stuff in the first half. Um, he was running at the at the German defence, and that's kind of what did um, create that chance for Harry Kane. I think you're probably right, fair to say that if he had got his head up and played the pass, then it would have created a better chance for Harry Kane. But ultimately what Raheem Sterling does when he's at his best is put put poo in the in the pants of the defenders in front of him because he just runs. And if you are if you're Rudiger Hummels and Ginter, you don't know which way he's gonna go. Um you don't know uh if he's going to go left or right, if he's going to take a shot. And that what happened when Sterling ran at the defence was that they all were chitting themselves and then just got drawn to the ball. Yeah. So it looks like Raheem Sterling's running down a dead end because there's four defenders around him, but that's great play because you're creating space elsewhere. And you kind of deserve that luck when the ball drops to Harry Kane. Who, yeah, oh. you know, maybe it's right to say that if he'd had a better tournament or yeah. a better end to the season, he'd pop that straight in. But he has taken a while to get to get some some confidence. Um, it's certainly it's certainly over the top to say that we should be heaping all of the praise onto Raheem Sterling because what uh, what he even said after the game was that. It, Phillips and Rice were the most important players in the game. I don't know if I agree with that, but they were like that. He said they're absolute beasts in there. They put so much work in. They really made things difficult for Germany. I don't know, like Tony Cruz is meant to be this brilliant playmaker. Um, we've certainly not seen any, any much of that throughout this tournament, but he didn't have a sniff. Goretzka, his centre midfield partner, had a few shots I think from range, but he seemed to be really frustrated. So this is a the team should be praised, um, and the manager sure. For, for what happened last night. But yeah, it's certainly, certainly not fair to put it all on Sterling, but Sterling was a really important cog. And you can say that we get, we get to see the goals that he scored because, you know, for whatever reason, but ultimately he, that's what, he was there. And if his movement is what created those goals, and that's also what created his other goals. Like he, there's no uh, guarantee that anyone else would have been there in that time to score those goals. And maybe we'd, we'd score less. So it's it's hard to say, and I certainly don't think he's paid poor enough to warrant so much uh, so much criticism. I think he's he's been pretty fine, and he actually seems confident, and he has um, created things just by using what he has, which is his his nimble footwork and his speed. And while he may seem to run into a lot of dead ends and lose the ball, like you don't you can't get anywhere. You don't you can't 
push forward. Uh, sorry, you don't score goals or create chances unless you try stuff. Yes, yeah. And Th- that's... and that's what um what they were saying about someone like Harry Maguire, and that's the benefit of playing three a three man defence, is that you kind of have um uh, at the middle of the three. In the Germans' case, that was Mats Hummels, and in our case, it's John Stones, who kind of will just make sure they're always there. And then the one, the two either side of him have the freedom to either go a bit wider to support the wing backs, or and like you would you see Kieran Trippier and Luke Shaw playing kind of like as inside forwards at some point, because Maguire or Walker or one of the the wing players was even wider than they were, so they could become quite narrow, and the whole system works really well. And that's something about the modern the modern uh, centre-half that is kind of really valuable. If you have a player who is confident enough to stride forward from the back, like Harry Maguire did multiple times, go past a couple of guys, and he, he can even, like, he hasn't got the greatest burst of pace, but he can just knock it into a space and know that he's big enough and strong enough that the the opposing player is not going to get it off him. And then he can look up and, and play passes. So I think that is a really invaluable thing. I didn't see as much of that from Rudiger or Ginter in the, in the German defence. Um, certainly not effectively. So, no, yeah, Harry Maguire is a asset, absolutely, and that's why we they were almost worried about him at the beginning of the tournament. Whether is it worth bringing him if he's going to miss a couple of the first couple of games? Like, well, yeah, absolutely. Not only for his defensive qualities and his leadership, but because he can do that. Which you know, you can have a you can have a manager goes. We want to play this way, so. I'm going to put someone there and you're going to do it. Like Tyrone Mings played in mm. that sort of position. I know we've played um, four at the back at times, but Tyrone Mings is good and he is actually a left-footed centre-back, so you can definitely have him on the left and he can play come forward a bit, but he doesn't have the quality that Harry Maguire does and few few centre-halves do. So when you've already got wing-backs running at you and you've got a front three that is quite scary and then suddenly another player comes up from the from defence to create an even another number in midfield or even in attack, this is what this kind of modern fluid fluid football is all about so as much as to go back to sterling as much as we admonished southgate for sticking with sterling in the in the world cup three years ago because he was playing poorly game after game after game sterling hasn't played poorly and i guess fortunately for him he has notched a couple of goals along the way so it makes it harder to drop him but um we are kind of blessed I guess at this time with uh, and Southgate is kind of uh, got this double-edged sword of I've got Jack Grealish and Mason Mount and goddamn but yeah Bukayo Saka who got who got his game and I've got Rashford and I've got Jaden Sancho and I've got Phil Foden and even Jude Bellingham is like well, I can't possibly fit them all into a team so I need to put out the players that are going to do best against the opposition and not necessarily what is the general consensus of the best eleven? It's just who can do the best thing, and I'm so glad Saka got on because he was a real cause, real trouble. Yeah, and yeah, Grealish is a, a a perfect player to bring on in that kind of situation. You can just open things up. Like I know he would rather, and I think I would rather he played from the beginning every game. But someone like him, he will sit on the bench and look at where all the spaces are in the opposition team, and go, okay, I can see what they're doing, and I can see what they can handle. I'm going to give him something else and I'm going to go here and there and I'm going to pull him around and I'm going to create stuff. And yeah, he got an assist and he played the ball to Luke Shaw for his assist for um, for, for Sterling's goals. So he is key, but I wouldn't necessarily say he does, he has to start the next game, even though, um, you know, he's a great player to watch and he deserves it. And uh, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. I'm knackered. 
<laughs> I'm knackered after all that. Bringing on your key player to change up the game, eight, you know, 60 minutes in, is a classic archer manoeuvre. That's true, yeah. yeah like, that is the, the archer manoeuvre. Yes, it is bringing on that star player who then they're like, oh, sorry, were you, were you tired? Because Saka just absolutely ran you ragged for 60 minutes because now he's Jack Grealish. And yeah, who offers something different, but yeah. Yeah, something scarier, yeah. I think. Because he's a, he's a known quantity, and even though he's a known quantity, it's really hard to stop. Yeah, but also he's kind of interesting because he's a known quantity, but also, you know, how much does the German national team know about Aston Villa's star player? Right? He's well, not, I he's think not, in he's, any... He's not, like, at the, the Champions League, or he's not, you know, he's not at the Euros. It's like, you know, how much does, does Gareth Southgate know... But when he goes to play Switzerland, of of their player at Wolfsburg, you know, is like, like how good well, is yeah. how good is the scouting for these? You know, how familiar are you? How familiar is Mats Hummels with how to stop Jack Grealish, for example? Because he's not had, you know, then they don't operate. They haven't up till now operated in similar circles, you know. And whereas Sterling is like, well, he plays for Man City, right? We we see him at the Champions League. We see him play for England at the last World Cup. We know how he plays. We know how he operates. Then you bring on Jack on you bring on Grealish and it's like well this is one of his first major tournaments and like he's great for Villa but are the German national team really keeping an eye on Villa like they'll they'll have their tapes when they come to get ready to play England but like were they setting up for him a few months ago you know I yeah I think absolutely like the Premier League is the most watched and most competitive league in the world it's watched everywhere and I I guarantee that most of the players in the German team and in most of the major European leagues, sit down and watch the highlights from the Premier League every weekend. Of course they do. Absolutely. They all know what he's about. And all the hype that was built around Jack Grealish in England because of his performances in the Premier League. The, yeah. Your Germany's, your Spain's, France, not only because a lot of their players play, except for Germany, actually. Well, they yeah, had a few, but yeah. Um, yeah, they, they, all know, they know all about him. Like, we know Antoine Griezmann got Newcastle won the Premier League with Newcastle and the yeah. football manager it's yeah. because even though he's French and he plays in Barcelona he he will know the Premier League as good as you or I do because mm-hmm. that's, it's not only is in his world it's the best league in the world mm-hmm. you know so yeah I, I think they're absolutely new and that's yeah I think it's, it still raises the question about Jadon Sancho and why he didn't feature against Germany when he plays in German uh, he plays in German he does yeah, probably he, when he probably does speak it, speak it well, but um yeah there's there's there no there's no doubt in my mind that when um you know like uh, which game was it was it the Czech Republic game where or the Scotland game where Jack Grealish was um about to be thrown on and the big screen showed him um getting ready and all the crowd went yeah mm-hmm. because they all love Jack when that if when that happened in the Germany game when they saw him warming up or coming on they would have been like ah oh, jeez really <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Do we have to, especially like I mean, Rudiger would have played up against him in in the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. Um, as as would Kai Havertz and Timo Werner. Um, I don't know if Timo was still on, still on at that point, but um, yeah, no. There's um, there's definitely a, a fear factor there. I know the Germans are not really known for being afraid of anybody, but I think under Jerkim Ler in the last few years, they've had a real dent in their confidence. And uh, like we saw some of the other big, quote unquote, big nations going into their knockout games, they maybe were a little bit overconfident and expected more, uh, um, expected to win. Uh, and a Germany team of old definitely would have 
even they've been like, so what? It's England. So what? It's at Wembley. We're Germany. Mm-hmm. Look, look at us. But then, yeah, since uh, just before the World Cup, three years ago, they won't. They won't have the same mindset. Mm, okay. Luke Shaw. What a roundabout couple of years he's bloody had. He seems to have absolutely shone in the last couple of games. Just they've put the faith and the trust in him that he needs and he's more than delivered. Yeah, he's been brilliant. And I think the person he'll thank and we should thank for having him in the team is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Mm-hmm. Luke Shaw famously had a, a falling out with Jose Mourinho at, at Man United and kind of got frozen out of the team. But Solskjaer has shown a lot of faith in him too. And with it sh- and he's had injury problems too, but it just goes to show that the quality that he had when he was at Southampton as a youngster before Man United snapped him up, it's always been there. And it just took a run of form, staying injury-free for a while, the confidence of his manager to show that he is a world-class fullback or wingback. And uh, yeah, I think he, he's been a real handful for, for every defence he's played against so far. It was a really special night last night. That second goal was completely necessary, but it's changed a lot of things now. right? Where England can feel we didn't just scrape another 1-0. It wasn't lucky. We beat Germany. You know, We, we, re- we actually beat them. Um, and that's going to be a, a big thing going forward. But actually, the last 16s themselves. Unbelievable, Jeff. Unbelievable football that we saw in, yeah. the, in the last 16. Like, that, that wasn't a dud, a dud match there. It was pretty much incredible football all the way. The most boring match was Sweden-Ukraine. And then, in the... Like the final minute of extra time, bam, Ukraine get it. Oh, sorry, I thought you thought it was going to penalties, did you? Upset, Ukraine go through. Crazy days. That was that was mad, yeah. I, I, when you said the most boring game, I thought you were going to say Belgium-Portugal. Because even though that wasn't, um, it wasn't a classic, it was still an interesting game. Yeah. But then all the other games that happened around it have been fucking bananas. Uh, yeah, and then... The Ukraine, glory to the hero, the heroes, as you were messaging oh, yeah. over again last night. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I can't remember. Do you remember your your predictions for the round of sixteen? How many how many came true in the end? Like none of but, them. I think no. you did okay. You would have you would have said Italy to beat Austria. And yeah, I, I, I went for Denmark I, to beat Wales. Yes, I went Denmark, Italy, Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, France, England, Sweden. So if we if we kind of go through Wales. Wales v Denmark. Spectacular football from Denmark. Really just coming into their own, playing incredibly well. And Wales just kind of maybe felt like they let themselves down a little bit, maybe. I think they'll be disappointed, yeah. 4-0 looks like a terrible result, but Denmark kind of deserved it. And where Wales didn't create enough. So, yeah, I think they all, they won't feel hard done by. They'll feel... Yeah, then maybe they would feel a bit disappointed in themselves, for sure. Yeah. Italy and Austria, Belgium, Portugal was an interesting one. Because here we saw, and with the Netherlands as well, actually, both both with Italy and the Netherlands and Belgium, we've been looking at them, and well, France, we've been looking at them going, they look good, right? They look lethal in this tournament. And then France, gone. The Netherlands, 
gone. Belgium, they got a 1-0 win. You know, they didn't look that strong against Portugal, but it was Portugal. And then Italy against Austria. Italy, eh. It looked like they finally come up against a strong enough opposition and they couldn't find that same magic that they'd had at the very beginning of the tournament. Yeah, and that's not what anyone would have expected from Austria, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Like, I know I was expecting the Turkey game uh, for Italy to be, to be a tough one. It turned out not to be, and uh, they breezed past Switzerland in a similar fashion, and then the Wales uh, game was a bit was a bit tighter. So um, maybe their momentum almost waned a little bit after they put in a couple of really strong performances. Maybe their, their energy dropped. But yeah, I think if um, Austria hadn't brought it, Italy probably would have would have got through in normal in normal time, but fair play to Austria. But I know that there's a particular there was a particular instance in that game where we were glad they didn't get the rub of the green um, when uh, <laughs> when Marco Arnautovic thought he had scored and they got ruled to be marginally offside. And I, I wasn't actually watching that game. Um, I was at, I was having dinner with some friends and my phone buzzed in my pocket and I just had a quick glance at it on the sly. And it said, I hope you don't mind me repeating this. <laughs> it said in all caps, ha ha, fuck off, you racist. I don't know who would have <laughs> sent you that message. And then a follow-up message to say, oh, not you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was worried is, about that because I messaged yeah. it and then realised you would have no context for it if you weren't watching yeah. the match. And I was like, oh no, I don't want you to think I'm calling you a racist. Yeah, so uh, thanks for clearing that up. But uh, my the friends I was having dinner with, he was... Tom was popping in just to check on them what was going on. Um, but yeah, even even his celebration then was a little bit annoying. I watched it, the highlights later and he was all like, yeah, everyone shut up. You're all talking, you're talking. Just listen, look how good I am. And then for it to be chalked off, I was like, yeah, I feel I feel good about that. We, yeah. we said about how his goal um, in the group stage against, um, who was it against? North Macedonia, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, that maybe should have been chalked off because of his behaviour. Well, there you go. One one gets chalked off for him, and it was marginal. Like if, but in the days pre VAR, you would that could have been given. But uh, yeah, Austria as a as a team and as a as a nation did themselves quite proud. It's just you know let down by one asshole. Yeah, but then Chiesa's goal, Federico Chiesa's goal, oh, yeah. to break the deadlock. That was. Gorgeous. It was. Like, to, to do that an extra time as well. He looked like he'd been on for 10 minutes. But yeah. like somehow he... I think he did come on as a sub. Oh, let's check. I've said he's just... He looked like he'd just been on for 10 minutes. Cause maybe I, he I, was. I to say like, maybe he was. But he looked so fresh. And that's not really the... Like his touch was good and his feet were quick. And the finish was unerring. To say the least. Um, yeah. Actually, yeah. He had come on in the 84th minute. So he... <laughs> He was very fresh and uh, he had only been on the pitch for 11 minutes when he scored. And I guess that goes to show the value of sub- of substitutes. It's the which, benefit by the, way, of the Archer manoeuvre. The Archer manoeuvre. Yeah, because he'd been, he'd been really good this tournament, actually. But the, yeah, uh, England, by the way, didn't only made two substitutions. Only Jordan Henderson and Jack Grealish came on in that game. Which is, again, we talked about Southgate not using substitutions, but in other games, they've been um, game changers. Yeah, I wonder if it's a thing when you get to this to this point as well, because what we've seen here is a lot of extra time. So many matches have gone to extra time in half of them, I think. Yeah, and we've been watching and uh, watching it with my family, and my mum is like, "Oh, I want to go to bed," 
and she has to sit there and watch 30 more minutes of extra time and she's like yeah. she's like I'm just going to go to bed and then my stepdad's like no you're not you have to see who wins so <laughs> she's like can I watch it in bed no we're staying and it kind of goes yeah. it goes like that my girlfriend's always walking in going, is it still going on? I'm like, yeah, it's extra time. And she's like, oh my God, really? Yeah, and it, it is. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. and Not for everyone. I, I thought that that the Monday's game, Croatia versus Spain, France versus Switzerland, was again the best day of football since a few days before. <laughs> you know, that, you know in the, yeah. on the previous episode, I was like, oh, that, that group of F, the final day of the group of F was just one of the best days of football I've ever seen. And then a week later, Croatia, Spain, France, Switzerland, which no one would have picked really. Everyone would have just picked it as a drubbing and move on kind of situation, right? France destroys Switzerland, Spain outclass Croatia, jobs are good and off we go. But it was unbelievable, Jeff. Unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable, Jeff. Yeah, Magic Monday, they've been calling it. And yeah, like just ridiculous festival of football. Yeah. That was. The, Sp- the Spain-Croatia game was a bit more uh, kind of back and forth, I suppose. But then with the, the France-Switzerland game, it was just like a, a kind of... Uh, <sighs> You felt like Switzerland had their moment by scoring early and then France came back. Oh, like Hugo Lloris saves a penalty. Then they scored yeah. two really quick goals. One of them was sublime. Well, I said I said to you, like, Benzema's touch was half genius and half luck. And it's hard to really tell which which part of his brain was, was engaged there. Just, to, just stick a leg out and hope for the best on which part of it was and little touch and finish. But, yeah, you think then Pogba scores a worldie and you're thinking, okay, well, there you go. That's yeah, the real France. France. France they they showed up. Yeah, yeah. France are here. And then Switzerland's like, no, we're not done. Yeah. Fuck you guys. And yeah, that, that was an incredible incredible fight in a, a show of character that Croatia also showed at the in like the last five minutes of um, of normal time in their game where I think I said to you, fucking fair play, Croatia. Yeah. Like, good on you. Like without without one of their star players, Perisic the thought, they still managed to <laughs> they still they still managed to show some real some real class and Orsic who scores that their 85th minute goal he was brilliant really caused France, uh, France they caused Spain so many problems but ultimately I think it's uh, Spain are this upcoming team with a lot of young players who are probably going to hope well I would hope for kind of the neutral that they would start climbing that mountain back to the summit of world football now that they've they've let their golden generation pass and now they're trying to build a new one, and they've got a lot of a lot of exciting players in that squad. Maybe one day we'll be talking about them in a World Cup or Euros final, not not too long. Except for the world's most overrated striker, Alvaro Morata, who's sure he scores a world class goal <laughs> in extra time or whatever. <laughs> but I think he was involved in one of the other ones. Yeah. But still, <laughs> I think uh, maybe I feel a bit like uh, about him, like you think about Raheem Sterling, where. You, a couple of moments of brilliance yeah. don't make up for 89 minutes of just being flimsy and whiny, having poor touches, not trying to go past people and failing, fluffing easy chances, blazing shots over from the edge of the box. Yeah, he just... Duh, I, don't, I don't like him. Yeah, I don't like he's, him, he's your Raheem Sterling, and Sterling is my Morata. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. 
you can't take them out because they're the ones that keep scoring goals. But they're just not good for the rest of the match. Maybe they even cost you the match, but then they score the goal and they bloody win the game and you can't take them out because they, they scored. So it's frustrating. I don't know. It's frustrating. <laughs> Maybe if, uh, if, if, um, if you don't agree that Morata, or if you're like Emma Hayes in the ITV commentary, who I, who's really great. I've never listened to her speak before, but her punditry and commentary has been really good. Yeah. But she was saying how great Morata had been leading the line. And I was like, bullshit. He's been a, just a... I've already used all my good words, but no, he was not leading the line well. He was a pain in the ass, and it wasn't until the extra time where he was actually holding the ball up, bringing it down, bringing other people into play, winning free kicks like you want your centre forward to do, that I would have agreed. But the whole rest of the game, fuck him. (laughs) I like that. The Dutch coach quit after Holland went out. Really? Yes. Do you think the French manager should do the same? Um, no. I'm gonna I mean, I'm gonna pitch I'm on. gonna pitch it for you here, Dave. France best team in the world. There's no doubt. You you watch them play, you watch the, the way that they, they turned on there in that in that second half and got those three. Granted Switzerland got two back in the eighty you know, the eighty eighty fourth minute, pulled it pulled it back. Unbelievable play from Switzerland there. But the reason that France were no good in that first half was because of tactical decisions made by the manager. The manager decided to play the Gareth Southgate formation because of an injury that they'd sustained, swapped the way that they played football, and they conceded that first goal against Switzerland and did nothing the entire first half because they didn't know how to play that system. Now, the reason that they failed wasn't because Mbappe missed a penalty... Although he did, and ha ha. <laughs> but if it was if it was any other player, I'd be like, "Oh no, that sucks." But the boy needs humbling, Dave. He's a young, up and coming superstar, and much like when Pogba scored, and there was just a little bit too much ego in that goal. And Mbappe needs that. He needs a good talk with Golo Kante. To be, to be, <laughs> if, uh, if Ngolo Kante ever says more than five words, yeah, yeah. that'd be he's the right person to model yourself after. Yeah, Mbappe's had a pretty humbling tournament on the whole, and it, if it was going to be this kind of lesson, like you're saying, the way it ended for him will give him certain, hopefully, give him will certainly give him a lot of pause for thought. Yeah, because Neymar makes mistakes like this and never learns, and I'm, yeah, I'm hoping he's a punk. Well, exactly, and that's what I'm saying. It's a problem with Mbappe, is that he could turn out to be like Neymar. But I'm hoping that this experience will be one of those reflective moments where he goes, I am one of the best players in the world, but I need to be more like Cristiano Ronaldo and work and work and work and work to become the best player in the world, not just be like, you know, well, Paul Pogba scored that unbelievable. That was an unbelievable goal, Jeff. But, uh, you know, he can't just bank on the fact that he's already you know everyone knows who I am I'm Mbappe he needs to work at it yeah no I absolutely absolutely agree and if um if he wants to be the best in the world he will have to look at Ronaldo and that's the perfect model for him um and if you've watched any of the Ronaldo documentaries I think I've mentioned some of them before but you can look back on his career especially when he was young about Mbappe's age and disappointments that he had um like for the, with the national team especially, when he was in his first tournament and they got knocked out 
Um, I can't remember where it was, but, you know, he was like a, a kid who was in his first tournament and, you know, he, she should have been happy just to be there and be selected. And, you know, the, you know, there'll be many more to come, but he was distraught after being knocked out as if he wanted to win. And that's all he, he cared about. And he took that and it gave him this motivation, this drive to push and never let that happen again. And he goes on to become the, one of the two best players probably of all time. Um, and that was a pivotal part in his in his development. And Mbappe may well be at that exact same crossroads where if he doesn't react well, he could end up being another nearly a nearly man or a really divisive figure like Neymar, who is a teammate of his at PSG, and hopefully he's not not going falling under his wing too much and trying to do things on his own. And maybe one of them needs to leave PSG for Mbappe to develop um, in a more positive way. Mm. Who knows? But Mbappe didn't lose that match. It was the tactical, no. the tactical choices by the coach screwed them in the first half. And then when he went, oh yeah, actually we should probably just play like we normally do. They scored three goals within you know within thirty minutes. Granted, they conceded two, but that was Switzerland magic rather than France uh, France failure like it was in the first half. Oh yeah, well I don't know. I mean, I think that some of the defending was suspect. But does this mean that the French? manager also just cost N'Golo Kante the Ballon d'Or <laughs> um, it certainly would have hurt his chances the Ballon d'Or is a little bit um, askew in that way whereas if you don't win anything that year you uh, don't tend to win the the Ballon d'Or I think the same thing with Ronaldo happened when um, I think Real Madrid won La Liga quite comfortably and he got the golden boot and he'd been world class but then Barcelona won the Champions League and Messi got the Ballon d'Or and it was a bit of a hmm so you're basically just saying the Champions League is better than the La Liga right that's just all it takes well speaking of one failed leader to another this seems like the perfect chance to talk about Matt Hancock <laughs> well I suppose we should bring him up this is a politics podcast, partially, after all. Well, yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about great England successes and why the country so desperately needed this win, why England needed to be galvanised by the likes of Raheem Sterling. It's largely because of the man who is responsible for the deaths of 128,000 people. Now, you would have thought that being responsible for the deaths of 128,000 people would be enough to warrant some kind of criticism or investigation or no it turns out it's when you cheat on your wife that's when that's that's when you get in trouble that's the only time that these the tabloid newspapers are going to give a shit about what you do isn't it yes so matt hancock the now former health secretary for the uk led uh, led england through the pandemic did a uh, a shit job I think it's fair to say there was that time when he cried on television after the first vaccination and everyone went, oh, fuck off, Matt Hancock, because <laughs> he cried on television, but nobody believed that it was genuine. Was it, is it uh, disingenuous, Ellen DeGeneres? It was. It was. That's a fantastic reference to something nobody here is going to understand. But yes, it was just like disingenuous, Ellen DeGeneres, Matt Hancock. Um, and... Uh, I don't think he's particularly popular, but a lot of people felt, oh, he's just been, he's been doing his best. You know, give him a break. Yeah, 128,000 English people, well, British people, have died under his care. But 
just give him, just he's doing his best. And then Dominic Cummings, the devil himself, went in front of that select committee a month ago and was like, even Boris Johnson said that Matt Hancock was fucking this up. And here's the tweet from Boris Johnson that says, well, sorry, not a tweet, a text, a private text from Boris Johnson to Dominic Cummings saying, Matt Hancock is fucking this up. And like word for word? Yes. Oh, shit. Yes. So even at, the, awesome. even at the highest levels, they knew that he was doing a bad job. And what did they do? They let him keep going. Then, about a week ago, Boris Johnson met with the Queen. And the Queen said, I just met with the health secretary. Poor fellow. Even the Queen is throwing shade at Matt Hancock. Dave. The Queen was like, oh, this poor guy. Like, she was trying to show sympathy to him. She Because Matt Hancock went there to brief her and it's the Privy Council. It's like other Prime Ministers and the Health Secretary and then like other important uh, influential experts. Basically, they meet with the Queen and, and with the, the Health Secretary to give him advice and to say, ah, if you did it this way or if you do so, you know, and it's, it's the Queen is able to be an ear for the leaders and, you know, to be like a, a a shoulder, an important person who can give them advice. And, you know, she's seen a lot of things. She, you know, fair play. But Boris Johnson came to meet her afterwards and she was like, that poor guy, that poor guy, Matt Hancock. Then three days later, bam, there's a photo on the front page of the newspaper of him kissing someone in the Department of Health and that someone wasn't his wife. Don't forget the the the, the, the hand on the buns. Yes, that's true. There was a tushy grab. In the there photo was... as well. Yes. Now, this has been controversial for a number of reasons. It's just come out now that the CCTV camera that captured that photo of, of them kissing was moved 90 degrees specifically to get a photo of them kissing. That camera is not supposed to face that, that way. When Scotland Yard and other security experts put that camera in, they pointed it towards the balcony, towards the window. But somebody reorientated that camera to be in that position and got that photo, which makes it seem like a setup. Yeah, I I did think it was weird that they would smooch right underneath a security camera. That seems dumb. Yes. Now, this is also kind of bizarre because Matt Hancock, when he apologised for what was going on, said, I need to spend time with my children, so I'm resigning from the Department of Health. Now, what's interesting about that is he didn't say, I'm really sorry to my wife and I need to spend wife uh, spend more time with my wife and family while we decide what to do. No, instantly he said, I need to spend more time with my children. And then Gina, what's her face? The, the woman that he was kissing, who was hired, I completely missed this out, but she was hired to be his advisor at the Ministry of Health. She works 15 to 20 uh, days of the year, and for 15 to 20 of those days a year, there's fucking more than health advice going on, if you know what I'm bloody talking about. He's going to need... Isn't she... <laughs> Isn't she married to some uh, millionaire as well or something? Yes, and as soon as this news broke, they both left their husbands and wives and are now officially dating each other. Are you serious? I'm completely serious. Now, what this kind of leads me down a path of is Matt Hancock was officially having an affair and he was having an affair in the Department of Health with an advisor that he hired and was paying with public money so that he could be smooching her and grabbing her grabbing her on the butt that's not right however 
it seems like, well, we don't know what goes on in people's private lives, right? And if you're a conservative politician and you want to get a divorce as the health secretary during a pandemic, that's not a good time to do it. And there's a lot of political things that would say our relationship isn't working out. I think we should get a divorce. I agree with you. Can we wait till the pandemic's over? Because as the health secretary, my career cannot stand getting a divorce during the middle of a pandemic. And I can't, I just can't deal with that at the same time as trying to, you know, stop 128,000 people from dying, which he failed to do anyway. But as soon as this news broke, he resigned as the health secretary. He's, she's left her husband. They've gone off to go and live this, uh, you know, to go and start a new relationship together out in the open, out in public. Which is, the whole thing is weird. That's, it's well, it's so bizarre. Like, I don't, I, how long were they having this affair for? Well, who knows, they've been, friends, they've been friends for a long time. Before, even before she was advised and brought on as an advisor. Um, right. And then there's things of like, oh, she knows uh, different people who were hired for contracts, for COVID supplies, so on. It's, it's the Tories being the Tories. But the, the, the relationship of the two of them is not really the problem, to my mind, right? Whatever's going on in their private lives, you know, kiss whoever you want. If, if you know, clearly his relationship with his wife wasn't particularly good because they both went, yeah, well, now everyone knows. And, you know, I don't know if there's, if there's a heartbreak or sadness there, then, you know, that's not great. Fine. But the problem is... Hiring in someone that you're having an affair with and paying them from the public purse to advise you while, you know, maybe the advice was, you're awfully stressed, man. And for you to do the best job that you can do, I think you might need to grab me on the bum. <laughs> Relieve some of that stress. Relieve yeah. some of your stress, Matty Hancock. Some people have those, like, desktop stress balls that you can squeeze yeah. or those, like, hand um, strengthening grip, vice grip thingies. Yeah. He had a tushy. He did. He did. And the CCTV camera caught it. And now he's gone. Which leads us to the question, should Matt Hancock have been forced to resign from his position? Now, Dave, this is a little political tip for you here. And I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell this to everyone out here on the pod. The minute that the Prime Minister releases a statement saying, this person has my full support, they're going to resign in about five hours time. You know what that reminds me of? What's that? That reminds me of in old championship manager games <laughs> where the board come out and say, no, no, you have our full confidence. And then inevitably you'd be sacked within a few days. Right. That, that's the exact same thing. Right. If the prime minister says this person has my full support, it means they're going to resign because the prime minister has done their bit. They've stood behind them. But really, the public scrutiny is too much and they have to go. So Matt Hancock has been told you have to go. But he's um, he's you know, the prime minister's done his, his due diligence. Yeah, he comes out smelling of roses. But then why if 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 a minister is basically forced to resign, what's why not just sack them? Like if. What's the what's the difference? Who's well, it why protect them? It, it depends if this scandal is permanent. If he will be welcomed back into the fold eventually, like or if that's it for his career, right? If if it was like oh no he's done and we need to get rid of him like he is toxic waste he has you know we if if he does like a Jimmy Savile then you know shit's got to hit the fan but 
they've given him the chance to come back into politics later on once this scandal has died down and so on and so forth. Yeah, the annoying thing about this is like, if an affair scandal, it barely is a scandal. Like, I like who honestly gives a shit if ministers are cheating on their wives or not? Like, mm-hmm. in a in a non-pandemic world, that is no one else's business, and it shouldn't have affect their credibility even and to do their job. Like, that's such a to use a word conservative way of thinking, which is funny that you know conservative politicians can have divorces and have affairs and still call themselves conservatives. But maybe I'm thinking more of like a sort of a Christian. A fundamentalist American kind of idea of conservatism but anyway that's amusing but the scandal for me should be and I, I thought it was when I first heard this break there he was telling people to stay at home stay in their oh, bubbles yeah. keep two meter distance meanwhile he's snogging someone who doesn't he doesn't live with and you know that at the height of the pandemic it's probably one of the worst things he could have been doing or anyone could have been doing See, that was part of the large reason why he was, yeah, why uh, in his resignation, he said, oh, I was, I hypocritically broke the rules. But that's a bunch of bullshit because they work together in an office, right? And that's why, that's the problem with the government social distancing rules, right? They spent loads of time together in the office, working together, going over documents. The fact that they kissed is like, that's why the government rules don't make any sense. I know it's fine for you to work in an enclosed office space with these people, but actually kissing them, oh no, that's a step too far. It's like, oh, you can, you, can, you can lean in and touch their elbow with your elbow instead of, you can't shake their hand, right? And it's like, this is why the, uh, these rules are so ridiculous. But the, the, the big problem for me here isn't that Matt Hancock did what he did, should he he should have been fucking kicked out a year ago because everybody died. I don't know if I have to bring this up again, but everybody died and he was the health secretary. Instead, he's been removed for his job from kissing someone who wasn't his wife, being caught on a camera that was put there to catch him. And at this point, at this stage of the pandemic, where things are, by the way, getting worse again... Do you want to remove the health secretary, the most important person in dealing with the pandemic right now because he kissed the wrong person? Or do you want to say we're going to have to we're going to have to remove you from your position in two months time and we're going to give you this two months now to work with the person who's going to replace you to get them up to speed because Matt Hancock should know everything about how this is running. He is the one person in the pandemic response you can't remove because he's the guy in charge of it. So do you remove him because he kissed the wrong person? Yeah, I mean, or the, what, is there a possibility that there's they've, there's already... You know, like when... A bit going back to football when yeah. board come out and go, they've got our full support. And then the next week, not only do they get fired, but the replacement is hired immediately. Yeah. Making you think that they already were planning on doing it anyway and they're just waiting for the right time because they had someone lined up. So in the government, is this, could there be a similar thing where maybe somebody who's been working underneath Matt Hancock, in, in a manner of speaking, um, <laughs> ish. Not no, no, that's good. That's the perfect time to be using it, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there might be someone who's been with him the entire time who can step in and they can go, well, we don't need you because you have a whole team of people. It's not all on his head. Mm. There is a whole bunch of people who can who can step in and maybe they'll 
hire someone to oversee things, but it will kind of be reliant on his whole his whole team to to move things forward. And actually, as the figurehead, as the person who has to stand in front of the cameras and give press conferences, isn't actually the most important person. He's just the one who has to take all the responsibility in a proper like managerial sense. Yeah, well, maybe that's it. And either way, he's gone now. But yeah, it's, it's dumb that they would, even though, like you said, he's objectively done a bad job, it takes a scandal to be, for him to be removed when in anyone else's line of work, if they fail to the point where deaths are beyond what could have been avoided, yes. then yeah, that should have been it. Or, I don't know, I was thinking about it, maybe like they thought, he's clearly done a bad job, but as you said, the pandemic is still going on, we can't really get rid of him. If and when the pandemic dies, we all remove him then. Mm. And like, here's your end of end of uh, year review. Uh, it doesn't doesn't look great, so we're going to go in a different direction. Yeah. But thanks very much for for trying. Uh, <laughs> see you later. Yeah. It is unbelievable, Jeff. The whole the whole thing, and the fact that there are not criminal proceedings against a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, of course, but they're the government, so who's going to... Like, with the indictment of Trump, it's like, yeah, everybody knows, the entire world knows he's a criminal, Is there? but then is there anyone who's going to step up and punish him for it? No, they're going to say they are, and they're going to put him on trial, but then he'll just walk away. Yeah. So the same thing would happen. It's like, how do you charge one man with the deaths of... Well, this what, is, is it, how many hundreds of thousands? 100, over one hundred twenty-eight thousand. Yeah, and that yeah, that's that's kind of the big deal for me is that the reason that he has been removed is because he kissed someone breaking COVID guidelines. Remember when Dominic Cummings broke COVID guidelines, and the yeah. their government would let him go on television to the garden to explain why he did what he did, which was illegal because civil servants aren't allowed to go on government service broadcasting because they're not elected officials, but he did anyway. That was, that was, wasn't enough to get him, you know, for him to resign. And this is the one person who has failed catastrophically, whose failure could only com- be compared to the Prime Minister himself. And he's forced out because he kissed someone. And actually, you're only allowed to touch their elbow. So, yeah, that's there. I see. I get your point completely, because history will remember him as the health secretary who snogged the wrong woman and got caught on camera. Mm-hmm. And maybe that will overshadow the fact that, yeah, he was very poor in executing his duty for yeah. I mean, I've got two years. I've got lots of stuff to bring up about Ukraine and LGBT flags and the fallout of the sponsors, the sponsors now uh, of the Euros using rainbow flags in all of their, their sponsorship around the stadium because UEFA refused to allow that. I've got there's There's so much stuff, but this has got to be the moment for Matt Hancock to shine. And uh, not sorry to see you go, Matt. But it's a shame that this is what it was. And we're not going to get the public reckoning that we deserve. Because yeah. uh, the the public reckoning is going to be finding out who moved that camera. And uh, who set him up. And if it turns out that it was Boris who had that camera moved because he knew he was having an affair. Mmm. Mmm. That's a spicy, spicy. meatball. <laughs>
Oh, chances are it was just someone who works there who got sick of all of his sneaking around and hypocrisy and was like, fucking weasel, I'm going to snake him. Yeah. With too many animal adjectives. I I think, yeah. You you snake, you sneaky snake, I'm going to mongoose you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You are the snake, I am the mongoose. The quarterfinals, Dave. Yeah. They're coming up in a big way. Friday, Saturday this week. Yeah. They're they're more exciting than any quarterfinals that I've seen for a long time. Because who bloody knows what's going to happen next in this tournament? Yeah, that's a fair point. There is no sure thing left. The only sure thing is Luke Shaw. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What do and you What do you reckon then? I know you know our predictions have not been the best because this tournament has been all over the place. Yeah, but yeah. looking at looking at how things are, what do you reckon? Well, I know we haven't talk, we didn't speak much about the Holland Czech Republic game, but Holland were one of those examples of I think where they showed up just expecting to win. Oh yeah. And that was their downfall. And the Czech Republic showed up to fight and to play football and to, and they just outclassed Holland, who were blown away really. I think by the fact that it wasn't easy for them. Yeah. So I think they've got enough, only got themselves to blame. And the Czech Republic have been a real surprise package to get all this way. As has so, Denmark, though. Well, absolutely, and they're so those two coming up against each other. Oh. It's it'll just be interesting to see how long this wave of. Danish resurgence, resilience, emotion um, gets them through. And I suppose we won't know until the end or until they reach their end um, how much of it you can attribute to what happened in the first game with Christian Eriksen and, the, and you know this extraordinary circumstance that they've galvanised around and how much of it is the fact that they with, are a good football team because they have shown that they are a very good football team. Mm. Like They made easy work of Wales and then pulled off some great results in the group stages um so yeah i mean in terms of going forwards they seem like they can score goals for fun eight goals in their last two games whereas the czech republic haven't been quite as prolific um but they are resilient and they can hold um hold a a strong line and they stay very organized and they've got a great um sort of team spirit um so yeah like I guess for the neutral, you kind of want Denmark to keep going. Oh, yeah. And I know that you do. I do. The problem will be if we have to play them in the next round, that's going to cause conflicts for me. But speaking of teams that have galvanised, we've got uh, the newest attempted entry into NATO, Ukraine, are playing playing against England coming up. Ukraine, they've been touted, Dave, as the West's hope for LGBT rights. In Eastern Europe, they're saying Ukraine, Ukraine's the beacon of of rainbow colored light in uh, an area surrounded by Russia and Hungary and Poland. Wow, really? Good for them. Yeah, well, it seems to be a government action. It seems like uh, the Ukrainian people seem to think very similar things to the Polish people and the Hungarians and, and, and the Russians. But the Ukrainian government is desperately trying to appear more European so that they can say, yeah. 
so that they can be accepted in the EU and in think places like NATO. The reason that NATO isn't eager to accept Ukraine is because Ukraine is currently already in a war with Russia. Um, and if it is to join NATO, then other NATO countries would be in a war with Russia. Um, and Russia is like, see, we don't even, there's not even a war going on. We're not even fighting a war. Um, whereas Ukraine is like, please let us join NATO so someone can come and help us. But if they join NATO, then everyone has to acknowledge there actually is a war going on. And then we're in a war with Russia. So NATO's kind of like, oh, no, we're going to we're going to help you. We're going to help you. But because we're cowards, we're not actually going to get involved. So Ukraine, <laughs> it's a strange country, but they've galvanized around that the map on their chests, the, the fervent patriotism that comes with glory to the heroes, glory to Ukraine. Yeah. And throwing some of it in the face of Russia might you know, win them some oh, fans yeah. in, in the West. Yeah, very much so. Will that see them through a game against England? Well, after last night, you hesitate because, well, I hesitate because I'm English and therefore cynical and and uh, all doom and gloom, but England have got to be considered one of the favourites left in the tournament considering their record. Not conceded a goal, not lost a game, obviously. Uh, just beat Germany 2-0. And I think you, you'll probably remember, I was not super thrilled with Ukraine getting out of the group stage into the knockout phase. I thought they were undeserving of that place. Um, uh, based a lot around their performance in the final game against Austria when they looked like they didn't really want it. And they ended up losing, but still managed to go through just because of out of luck, really, because of what happened in the other groups. Um you know they they just about beat North Macedonia and they had a spirited fight back against Holland, but um, still lost that one. Um, and I was, I wouldn't say I was rooting for Sweden last night, but I was not excited when uh, Ukraine scored their goals. And I like Andrei Shevchenko and I like uh, Andrei Yarmolenko, the West Ham player, and Yaremchuk is is a good player. And I I thought he would do better goals wise. To be fair. Um, it's just something about them that doesn't sit right with me from a footballing perspective. And a lot of what you've told me from a political perspective, I'm like, well, you know, they seem like they may be there trying to improve themselves on the, on the world stage politically. Um, but Sweden, I didn't think we're going to lose this. Um, mm. And even even after they got back to one all with Forsberg, who was, was, would, would have been on no one's list for the top goal scorers in this league. Yeah. Uh, in this tournament, um, goes up, goes away having scored four. But when Zinchenko scored their first goal, I was like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> and it's partly because I don't like Alexander Zinchenko. It just winds me up. There's something about him that I really dislike. Well, He's got this, you, like, might, you might get to see England absolutely smash the shit out of them in Rome. Well, hopefully he'll come up against his teammates like Kyle Walker and... Uh, John Stones and yeah just get put on his ass because he's got this like real annoying like small dog kind of attitude where he he looks like he's really trying to be a leader on the pitch he's being really vocal he's telling his teammates what to do he's trying to g them up but (laughs) in a way that they almost look like they're ignoring him they're like just like he likes to think that he's important but he's not like He's got this weird attitude that, that I perceive of like I play for Manchester City. I play, like Pep Guardiola is my manager, and therefore I'm probably the best player in this team. And he's a like a decent footballer, but 
he, I think he's got ideas way above his station. Oh, it's like the and, Raheem Sterling problem. Oh, no. Not, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Alexander Sinchenko has just got this... Uh, this yeah, this this little dog with a big ego. mouth attitude that I yeah. that I don't. He's got his huge ego, and it's it's la- almost laughable. I almost pity him for when I see him trying to be a leader, trying to be, um, uh, vocal. And I'm just like, no one's listening to you, man. Like you're tiny. You've probably got a squeaky voice, and you only got the where the armband after the Armalenka went off because you're just the only one who speaks. <laughs> and it's and probably because you play for Man City, so maybe you've got some good experience, but. No, I just don't like him. I don't like him and I don't like his face. Okay, well, <laughs> but that, Saturday know, they, the 3rd of won. July, yeah, 8pm, 8, 8 we'll see if uh, if that guy's face can see them through against England. Um, I, don't think, I don't think it will. I think, <laughs> I, I think we might be looking at, I, I, uh, at Denmark-England semi-final, you know. I think this is going to be the toughest game that England have had so far. Do you really think so? I do, because this is the only game in which we're not playing in Wembley. And everybody else has been flying yeah. around, going to different countries, while we've been sat in our one training camp, 20 minutes away from part, the stadium. Yeah. And then we rock up, are well-rested, completely relaxed, in climate temperature we're used to. Everything's normal, everything's usual. Ukraine have been buzzing around all over the place. Eh, we're going to Italy. Yeah, fine, 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 fine. Whereas for England, this is the one time they're going to be uprooted. And can they continue... Even uh, even though they're at this... Now it's a disadvantage for them because they've been at home the whole time. Whereas for Ukraine, yeah. it's just another game, you know. Yeah, that's a fair point. This is our first kind of away fixture, yeah. if, if you will. Whereas, yeah, Ukraine will feel like they've played away every single yeah. every single game. Switzerland, that, that Switzerland Spain. Switzerland, Spain. You would have thought Spain scored 10 goals. 10 goals in two games. But also they haven't really looked that good. No. And Switzerland no. just Switzerland just stopped the French. So what do you reckon? Can Granit Xhaka see him through? Well, uh, um he has been very impressive this tournament, both as a like a central midfield player and as their leader. I think he's really led them well and there's no doubt that he's been super key for them. Um, just pinging things around. Like he was doing what Paul Pogba does for France against France, just sitting deep, playing good passes. I mean, some of Paul Pogba's passes aroused me. They yeah. were so oh, good. they were incredible. Yeah, there's one like that sort of side half volley down the line. I was just like, that yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yes, so yeah. good, and his goal was amazing. But I think Micah Richards said Paul Pogba does not deserve to go out. Just, yeah. just him on his own. And probably N'Golo Kante because he doesn't deserve anything bad to ever happen to him because he's lovely. Yeah. But yeah, France as a team did what Holland did, I think, and were like expected to go through and they were found wanting. But Switzerland, like um, Czech Republic did, they just went, no, we want this more than you do. And yeah, even though they had a penalty saved, they go into a penalty shootout at the end of the game and hold their nerve. And yeah, you can't help but feel a bit of a stir of support for from a neutral point of view, even though you, you expect France to win and you want to see beautiful football. Um, Switzerland, yeah, fair play. They they were a better team than France were, even though they don't have anywhere near as good players. Yeah. Um, so they're going to face a very similar experience, I think, against Spain. And the Spain, I guess Spain will have the advantage of having watched 
what they did against France and being prepared for it. Whereas I don't think France were ready for what Switzerland brought. So yeah, that'll be really exciting because Spain have been fragile too. Yeah. And then what could easily have been the final of the entire tournament. But we're getting it early because Christmas is, Christmas is coming around on the 2nd of Friday, the 2nd of July. Belgium, Italy. In Munich. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I wouldn't have said so before the tournament, but after the first two group games, you're thinking Belgium and Italy are two of the best teams mm. in, this, in this tournament. And they're looking at the teams that have gone home. Yeah, now, like they kind of stand above as the, as the two most um, f- forward-thinking, attacking, attackingly... That's not a right, a right word. Most forward-thinking, attacking-minded, dangerous teams... Yeah, to have them, to be left with only one of them after this will be a coup for whoever else manages to reach the semi-final, knowing that, you know, they had to get through, they had to get through one or the other in order to get here. And England, to get going back to England briefly, like Ukraine have just gone through extra time, whereas England managed to do their game in, yeah. in normal time. So it's the same with Switzerland. Switzerland and Spain kind of, have, neither of them have an advantage because they both had to go through extra time. Um, but Italy, maybe... Uh, might be a little bit more fatigued um, having played extra time. But on the other hand, their game was one day earlier than the Belgium-Portugal game. So they would have had an extra day to recover. So actually, they're both travelling. Italy played at Wembley and Belgium played in Spain. So now they're both going to Munich. There's an awful lot that's kind of cancelling itself out, isn't there? Yeah, but you've got to put money on it. Who's it going for? You know what? I think I'm going to go Italy. Oh, big cool. Yeah, I've, I was more impressed with Italy, even though it took them a while against Austria than I was Belgium. I mean, we haven't talked about Forgan Haggard. For, Haggard? He was not Haggard, anything but Forgan Hazard's goal against Portugal, which was a beautiful strike. Question marks maybe until the goalkeeper, but no, no doubting that it was a goal worthy to, to win a game of knockout football. And he's your boy. Like You, sh- you should be happy about that, right? Dave, I'm heartbroken, and this is this oh, is this is me kind of leading in now to uh to the end of the episode, because um, we set up an awful commentary fantasy football league, and we're going to bring out a bonus episode where we talk about fantasy. Maybe we'll do a, at the end of the tournament. We'll do a summary of how our fantasy football teams changed. But at the very beginning of the fantasy football. I picked a team not consisting of the best players in the tournament, but basically who my favourite players in the tournament were. And as I'm sure anyone who's listened to this can guess, in goal we had Kasper Schmeichel, because of course he's the best in best looking, most talented, best lineage. You know, he's he's <laughs> yeah. he's Kasper Schmeichel is is a dreamboat. I had Thorgan Hazard, because Thorgan Hazard's my boy. I had Paul Pogba because I love Paul Pogba and I think he does he does really great. Um, I had all of the players. I had Xhaka. I had Granite Xhaka because you know after the World Cup and the way he stood up for Kosovo, flipped the bird. I'm all about Granite Xhaka. I put in all of my dream players, and then none of them performed particularly well in the group stages. So I thought this isn't working. I'm gonna change everybody. I'm gonna change everyone. Luke Shaw was in there. John Stones was in there. I got rid of them. I thought there's no way we're getting through that Germany game. And then, after performing <laughs> absolute wank in the group stages, 
all of the players I got rid of, all my favourite players, suddenly they took they they found a, a, a switch and all my favourite players. I'm now I'm now in the lead of our fantasy group if I change nobody. But because I changed them all, I'm still like last. But if I'd kept all of them the same, I'd be in the lead. Which is You didn't change Casper as well, did you? I changed Casper because I didn't think that I thought Gareth Bale was gonna score. So I oh went for, I went for Dormammu, the Italian keeper, because I thought the Italians would keep the Austrians out and they didn't. They didn't. Good shout for you know, he's still in the tournament, but yeah. That's those clean sheet points gone and missing. Yeah, you know what? This is a lesson to people, to stay with your heart. Stick with love, stick with freedom, and you'll win the real fantasy day. It's just waiting for you. you. Life, life is the real fantasy. And it's kept safe by the safe hands of Kasper Schumacher. Oh, that's nice. I saw something uh, I I wanted to end the episode with here, which was an article from Politico, the political website and they were talking about the politics in the euro got to admit it wasn't quite as good as the things that we've spoken about but it was a fine it was a fine article <laughs> i noticed as well the bbc have been stealing from us in that you in the build-up to the ukraine episode yesterday they kind of like stole you know what we do on this podcast but you know it's fine it's the bbc but on politico they decided like a bunch of fucking nerds that they were going to compare how well teams have done in the Euros by their position on the Economist Intelligent Unit's Democracy Index. They were going to see if teams that are from more democratic countries do better at the Euros, right? Is the fact that your, your country is more free a benefit on the footballing stage? So... The team, the uh, countries in Europe that are the least democratic, according to this index, Turkey and Russia. Okay, off to a good start. We know how they bloody well did, don't we? They were they were the worst performing teams of the entire Euros. People thought they were going to do better, and they didn't. Maybe if they were a more open and free society, they 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 could have done better. Other teams. Can you guess the, the, the country's highest on the democracy index? Uh, Denmark. Exactly. Denmark and Sweden, the, the two highest countries on the democracy Did index. Did I nail it? Oh, you nailed it. Absolutely there, nailed myself. it. Sweden, you know, controversially thrown out by Ukraine, which is not as high on the democracy index. But they're trying, Dave. They're trying to be more democratic. They had a revolution for the sake of becoming more democratic. The only problem is they're being dragged down by the Russians. And that's why it's so satisfying to see the Russians go out. But yes, Denmark, one of the highest countries on the on the democracy index. Then you end up with other ones, you know, you've got England, Germany, whatever. But it turns out that the more free your society is, the uh, the better you will tend to do at footballing tournaments. And I think there are numerous reasons for these. A lot of it as well is based upon your, around your economy. The, the more successful your economy is, the more money you can put into your sports, which is why like wealthier countries do better at the Olympics, obviously, because America spends all of its money on, you know, on being good at the Olympics so that they can do better than Bahrain, where they don't have enough money to spend on the Olympics. Um, but it goes to show that it's not all about the size of your population, Dave. Just because you're Russia and you have 20 times the population size of Denmark 
doesn't mean you're going to outperform them when it's just 11 v 11 on the football pitch. I mean, look at Croatia at the World Cup. There's like a population of 4 million people and they got to the World Cup final, man. Oh, yeah. We're going to be talking about presidents and prime ministers as we go on as well, because we have seen some hunks and some babes and they're all political <laughs> leaders. So we'll be bringing that up as, uh, as we go through. Thank you very much for joining us for this roundup of, uh, of the last 16. The quarterfinals are coming up. We're going to have a conversation about the Copper America, the fantasy football things, just because France is gone. Don't you be thinking that this is the end. It's not. We're still here, baby. Pew, pew, pew. Goodbye, guns. Pew, pew. <laughs> bye bye, France. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> bye bye, Germany. Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> whisper it, whisper it softly. Two world wars, one world cup, F- five one, and post coronavirus. We fucking did it again, you motherfuckers. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> <laughs> That's as patriotic as I get. <laughs>